So, like Josh said, my name is Evan Coleman. I just graduated here in May, and so um, I'm a Butler alumni and just started going to Ruit Church about last year. So this is kind of like a worlds collide for me. So it's just a real joy to get to be able to be here tonight and um, teach through God's Word with you all, walk through God's Word with you all. Um, right off the bat, I just want to start with my main idea that I want you all to walk away with tonight um, so that if you're ever, you know, kind of wandering as we walk through the word, um, you can bring it back to this central idea. And that is that the believer who has saving faith in Jesus can have absolute certainty that they have eternal life. So uh, let's start off with a little bit of a recap of last week. So for all of you who were here last week, you remember Connor was teaching through um, the first part of 1 John chapter 5 concerning God's testimony. And if you'll remember, um, there was an illustration that Connor brought to mind, um, and that was, he said, imagine a courtroom, and you're in this courtroom, and there's three witnesses that are trying to testify um, to the truth of Jesus and the truth of God's word. Um, and these three witnesses were the spirit, the blood, and the water. Um, and so what Connor did was he asked you to evaluate whether you would accept this testimony or reject this testimony and, and got along with that. Now, uh, as we wrap up First John, I want to invite you all to um, come back to that image in your mind. Put yourself back in that same courtroom. Um, but this time, instead of those three witnesses um, testifying, you're in the judgment seat. It is you who is on a court trial. And you will be testifying before a, a holy God, um, a God who is love. Um, and so we must ask ourselves as we evaluate that, how does last week's court case, how does God's court case apply to mine? So thankfully, John answers that in this passage. It won't leave us hanging. So uh, with that being said, let's pray, and then I will read the text, and we'll get into it. We bow your heads with me. Father, um, we just come before you in the name of your Son. We thank you so much for the opportunity to get to um, gather tonight um, in the name of your Son. Walk through your word. Lord, what a privilege it is that we get to read it, that we get to talk about it, that we get to try and dissect and analyze it so that we can grow to be more like you. Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Um, Lord, I pray for um, peace for any shaky-hearted believers. I pray for um, conviction of your Holy Spirit. I pray you will reveal to us idols and sin that we've been clinging on to for too long. And I just pray that as we walk through the word, um, Lord, we will have assurance, we will have confidence in your gift of eternal life to us. Lord, um, bless the words that I speak. May it all be glorifying to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the text for tonight is going to be 1 John 5, 13 through 21. So if you want to turn there with me. I'll be reading out of the ESV. Okay. And it says... I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Okay. Excuse me, sorry. Okay. So, I actually want to start off um, by asking you all a question. Um, it, might, it might seem a little intense, it might be a little uncomfortable, but I think it's a question worth considering um, and one that's been especially important in my life and in the life of many other Christians I know. And the question is, have you ever stopped for a moment and just thought about your death? Have you ever stopped and taken the time to think about probably the most important day of your entire life? Um, you know, consider what you're living for. Sat down and truly thought, it's all going to be over in a second. I can't stop it. Only God knows when it is. And it happens in the blink of an eye. Now, for the non-believer, uh, they hear this, and the first thing they're going to think is, I don't want to think about that. They're going to push it to the back of their mind like it's an old homework assignment in their backpack that they don't want to look at anymore. Because more likely than not, they're, they're scared of it. Um, they don't have any kind of confidence of what comes after death. And they probably haven't heard the truth of Jesus or his words. Now, for the believers, I would hope that the thought of death is, is a joyful thought, right? As Paul talks about, for us, it's gain to die because we get to be with the Lord. Whether he returns first or he takes us home first, it doesn't matter. As believers, we all get to share that beautiful experience where we come before God in his throne, on his throne, and, and experience the fullness of joy in his presence and be united with our Father, right? And yet, at the same time, if you're anything like me, you've probably had moments where you're thinking to yourself, I'm a believer, but how do I know for 100% certain that I'm truly saved? How do I know with 100% certainty that I will pass through the judgment? Well, I promise you're not alone in that. In fact, that's exactly why John is writing to these believers. Um, he's not writing a letter to non-believers. This is primarily believers. And they're having doubts and actually lacking assurance, which is why he touches on this in his letter. So if any of you were here in previous weeks when Brian spoke, um, he spoke about how there was apostates that went out from among these believers. There were people who claimed to be believers at first, but then later went out from among them and talks about how they were never actually of them. Now, undoubtedly, this would create some shakiness, some tension, maybe even some doubting among the believers in the body because these people who were once claiming to know Jesus were now abandoning their faith, right? So what we can draw from this is that it's actually normal to have doubts as a Christian. You don't have to feel shame or condemnation just because you have doubts about, let's say, your salvation or the promise of eternal life. But what's important is that we handle those doubts as God would want us. So we take them to him in prayer. We talk to other believers or trusted um, people above us in the church and speak to them about those doubts. Um, now, when I talk about 100% certainty, this is the goal, right? This is what John is writing to us for. This is his almost purpose statement, is that you are sure that you have eternal life. But when, he's, when I talk about 100% certainty, I don't mean that you never, ever have doubts. In fact, like I said, it's normal. What I do mean, though, is that we want to walk away from the text having 100% certainty and trust and confidence in the work of Christ being sufficient for us to pass through the judgment, in the work of Christ, his atoning work being sufficient for us and on our behalf. Um, I think it's safe to say that when John writes this letter, he wants us to treat um, 
the testimony of Christ, the assurance of eternal life, like the ground we walk upon. We don't even question it. We just stand on it, right? We're not questioning, oh, is this ground going to hold me up? We just walk on it, right? We don't question it. It keeps us upright, and it gives us a firm foundation all day, every day. Um, so let's jump in um, verse by verse here. So starting with verse 13, like I said, this is John's purpose statement of the letter. Um, and, and it's my personal opinion. I believe this verse actually summarizes the entirety of John's heart in writing First John, right? He's been laboring through five chapters to teach us about what it looks like to be a believer, how we can know um, and have assurance that God loves us, that we are saved, etc. right? In fact, John uses the word no seven times in this passage alone so that we might have true focus on how sure our salvation is. Um, and, and the word here in the Greek is specifically used in other instances throughout the Bible to talk about knowing Jesus Christ, the knowledge of Christ. It's used in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Luke, and many other places. Uh, and so let's unpack. What does he mean when he, say, he says that you may know that you have eternal life? What is eternal life? You know, we, we've briefly touched on it in other weeks, but we haven't really defined what it means. And it, it's very important. So the phrase eternal life is used by Jesus frequently throughout the Gospels. I'm sure many of you have verses coming to mind as I'm saying that, right? But it's defined as two things. It's defined as a present state of knowing God, and it's defined as a future, an eternal um, spending forever with God. It's, it's speaking of an eternal kingdom as well. According to Jesus, eternal life is something that is proclaimed, lived, and experienced. In knowing God, the believer has a deep experience with God. I'm sorry, has deep eternal life with God in this knowledge of God, and he experiences deep joy that cannot be contained, which is why at the beginning of 1 John, he says, we must share this joy with others so that our joy must be complete and their joy may be complete in having this eternal life shared together. Uh, That being said, it could be said that presently living in eternal life, a state of eternal life, means adhering to all of the commandments that John has laid out so far. So getting into those commandments, if you can recall, he's also said in this letter that God's commandments are not burdensome, but life-giving. So following these commandments is actually our way of telling God we believe him, telling him we believe his words, that his commandments are life-giving, that they are true, that they are righteous. And so since we want to honor him and love him and walk as Jesus walked, we should obey Jesus' command, where in Luke 20, 11, 28, he says, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Right? Those who do so, those who follow God's commands, those who love his commands because they're life-giving, can be assured that they have eternal life. That's what John's getting at here. It's a fruit of eternal life. Right? Now, on the other hand, if you want to reject his commandments, if you want to say, I don't want to obey you, I, I don't think that you're right, I want to go my own way and listen to my own heart. And actually, I hate your your ways. I hate your commands. You probably should not have assurance of eternal life. Um, And I think John makes that divisive on purpose. He's trying to get to the heart of people who call themselves believers. And he's trying to say, look, if you really proclaim this, if you really believe this, why don't you walk this way, talk this way like Jesus commanded? Um, And so we want to be careful because we don't want to, you know, speak to a believer and and put them under shame or condemnation if they are failing there's always grace right but for someone who is continually habitually walking in unrepentant unregenerate sin and and has a heart that hates god 
and they haven't been regenerated, it's probably safe to say they, have not, they do not have eternal life. They don't have that assurance that John's talking about. As Paul Washer once said, if you want to start a fight with someone, call them a liar. And I think it's the same with God. It's, we, we have lived and experienced and know that his commands are life-giving. And to spit in the face of that and to tell him that he's, he's not right, it's, you're going to start a fight. <laughs> um, now, on the other hand, when we do receive it, right, as believers, we can have great courage. We can have peace. There is almost a sense of fearlessness that is cultivated um, when we come to God's full truth and just rest in it. Just simply believe him and take him at his word. Um, so therefore, discipleship under Jesus looks like com- complete surrender to his word. Um, and within that eternal life, kind of wrapping up this idea of what is eternal life, we receive the benefits that God has purchased for us. Forgiveness of sins, relationship with him, protection from the devil, and determination in prayer. So let's move on to verses 14 and 15, where John begins talking about prayer. Um, In the previous weeks, we've touched on many different aspects of what John's trying to get at. He's kind of all over the place with his reasoning sometimes. But if we had to summarize into, into three basic categories, kind of the basics that he's getting at, I would say true doctrine obedient living, and fervent devotion. Now, that being said, in in verses 14 and 15, we find his idea concerning assurance continuing into the theme of prayer now. And one of the fruits of assurance, assurance of eternal life, is confident prayer, right? How many of you, as you've uh, bowed the knee to pray, um, have felt so encouraged, let's say, by a sermon or a song before, and it it has made your prayers all the more um, fervent, has made them all the more um, powerful because you have that assurance in the back of your mind as you're praying to him, oh, he's, he's hearing me. I know these things are true, right? Um, Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So we are to approach God's throne of grace with confidence, boldness, uh, knowing that we're going to be received with love. John says we're to be confident in prayer because if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us what he says there but many many of you may be wondering once we approach him how do we pray according to his will right what does that look like now for the pharisees of the time and for maybe some of us many of us think that if i pray longer if i pray with fancier words if i pray a certain way that i've heard a, a pastor i like pray god will receive it better god will listen to me more god will grant what i'm asking but Jesus actually destroys this notion in, uh, in Matthew 6 and teaches us how to pray according to God's will. So if you'll keep your finger in 1 John uh, and flip with me to Matthew 6, please. We're going to go to verse 7. Okay. Right. So, again, why we're here. Um, we're talking about how can I pray according to God's will, right? John's saying, if you pray according to his will, we know he hears us. So let's look at what Jesus teaches on praying according to God's will. I believe this passage summarizes it perfectly. So he starts in um, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So pray then like this. Now, don't, don't check out here, because I know everyone knows the Lord's Prayer, but let's, let's pay attention and analyze it. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay. So, what we have here with Jesus is the perfect psychology of prayer. And what I mean by this is that if Jesus is teaching us how to pray according to God's will, he's probably going to do it perfectly, and he's probably going to start with God's glory in mind. And that's exactly what he does in the Lord's Prayer. He starts off by saying, God, the, the first, the thing of utmost importance to me is that your name is holy, that it's set apart, and that my life reflects that, right? And then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now he's saying, God, may we act out your will. May we bring your kingdom to earth. And now it turns to my needs. Now it turns to, Father, give us what we need to eat. Give us our, our daily needs. Please forgive us. Protect us, right? He's trusting God the whole time to do those things for him. So this is, this is a summary of what it looks like to pray according to, God, according to God's will. Um, now we're going to move on, but you, you can leave your finger there if you want, because we're going to come back in just a second. Um, so in your own life, you may be wondering, well, okay, that's true. I've prayed according to his will many times, but still haven't received what I've asked for. Why didn't he give it to me then? Because I just read in 1 John that he would give it to me if I prayed according to his will, right? Well, if this has happened to you, don't let doubt or unbelief cloud your future prayers. Um, I think the Lord is trying to teach you in that what it really looks like to pray according to his will, and that is with faith, with patience, with obedience. Um, and ultimately, the hardest part, submitting to his sovereign plan, even when we don't know why, right? Now, as his children, we may not always know what's actually best for us, although we think we do. So, like I said... Um, let's go to Matthew 7, 9 here. And this, I promise this will be our last verse outside of 1 John. Um, so Matthew 7, 9, we have an illustration from Jesus. Speaking about asking it will be given to you, and so on. And he says in verse 9, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And it ends with an exclamation point. It's almost like he's, he's saying it confidently. Um, now, I think the main thing we can take away from this is that God is kind and merciful and gracious, and he loves to give good gifts to his children. And Jesus says, if you, a sinner, if you being evil, will give good gifts to your children because you love them so much, you would die for them, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those he loves, right? So what we can draw from this is that even if God doesn't necessarily give us what we want in the moment, we can assume that he has our best interest in mind at all times. We know from other parts of the Bible that he works all things together according to, to the good of those who love him. And so even if we don't receive something we may have asked for right now, God knows what's best for us. And we can rest in that. We can have confidence in that. Um, and we can move forward knowing that. Okay, moving on to verses 16 through 17. Um, so probably for some of you, as we were reading through this part, you were thinking to yourself, what the heck is a sin leading to death? Uh, and so I think it's important to, to recognize that there could be multiple interpretations here. 
but I'm gonna go with the most commonly agreed upon one and the one I believe myself. Um, and that is, um, well, let's back up. We know from the text here, when John says all wrongdoing is sin, and we know from Romans 6.23 where it says the wages of sin is death, right? The wages of all sin is death. Um, that there's not necessarily certain sins that God handpicks and hates, right? Some religions believe that, we don't. That being said, now we have to analyze the text and ask, why is he saying this if there's no certain sin that leads to death, right? So what I would argue for, and what most people would probably argue for, is that John here is talking about unrepentant sin, right? The idea that someone who is walking in sin continually over and over again without turning to God, maybe for a very long time, um, because they're either not regenerate, they're not believers, or they love their sin ultimately more than Jesus. And in the long run, um, John says it leads to death, right? Whether that's spiritual or physical. So I want to give an illustration here to help you guys kind of understand what that looks like. Um, This is an illustration I actually got from Hirsch. So the illustration is... Imagine a giant mud puddle. Maybe some of you have heard this before. Imagine a giant mud puddle. And next to the mud puddle, there's a a cat and a pig. Okay. Now, the cat sees the mud. He thinks that'll be fun. And he jumps in. And instantly, he realizes something is very wrong. And he jumps out of the mud puddle, disgusted. He wants to be cleaned off. And he doesn't ever want to fall back in that mud again because it's disgusting. The pig, as many of you know, loves the mud. He wants to roll around in it. He wants to enjoy his time in the mud. He wants to stay there. And in fact, he actually hates being clean, right? He's the opposite of the cat. This is a perfect illustration of someone who is living in unrepentant sin, right? The problem here is that the pig desires the mud. The cat desires to be clean. It is not the action. It's the heart within them. It's it's their desires. And so the person who is living in unrepentant sin, the person who is unregenerate has not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Their desires have not been changed by the Lord. And so because of that, they love sin more than holiness and, and love the love of Jesus. Now, as I close on that, I just want to say, as Christians, we still fall into sin. We still um, struggle with sin cycles sometimes. And it's, that's something we want to talk about. It's not something we want to hide. But the mark of a true believer is one who is continually coming to God with a contrite spirit, continually coming to God and saying, Lord, forgive me. I know I messed up. I can't do it on my own, right? They're humble before God and they're believing his promise, right? First John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So moving on, uh, let's, let's ask the question, why does John say we shouldn't pray for the sin that leads to death, right? Some of you might have been wondering that as well. Well, it's a simple answer, actually. John is not making the statement that we shouldn't be praying for unbelieving, unrepentant hearts. He's actually just using tentative language, and he's saying, I'm not suggesting that right now, but um, I think the desire, the the heart of the Christian should be, I I do want to pray for those who are unrepentant. I do want to pray for those who do not know Christ to come to him. But that being said, I think John makes this statement here for a reason, and it's important to look at this because it applies to our lives, too. He's trying to say, you are given permission to cease praying without feeling guilty for the one who is continually living in sin. Okay, and we have examples from this in scripture. Um, For example, God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7 to to quit praying for Israel. 
He told them to quit praying for Israel because, not because they sinned three times, not because they messed up a few times, but because for hundreds of years they were rebelling against God and God wanted Jeremiah to, to let's say, use his life better, not live in the guilt of, of this. Um, and so what we can take away from that is that we should be praying for people, but we don't have to feel guilty if there comes a point where it's clear that they've kind of gone uh, beyond the point of reaching repentance, right? Um, there's, a, there's another small example of this. It's when Jesus tells the disciples they can shake the dust off their feet and move on when they're out evangelizing. I believe it's two by two. All right. And then wrapping up, let's go into verses 18 through 21. Um, so a lot of the stuff John talks about here is actually kind of repetitive from previous weeks, but we'll touch on a few things. Um, in verse 18, um, it says, uh, I'll read my translation here. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Now, this is a bit of an ambiguous passage, and it's actually pretty debated over what it means in verse 18 when he says, but he who was born of God protects him. Um, other translations say, but the one begotten from God keeps himself from sinning. So there's, there's back and forth over whether this is talking about those born of God or Jesus himself being born of God. Now, I think either way, the idea that John's getting at here is that those who have been regenerated and have a changed nature do not recklessly continue in sin, right? Those who have been born of God do not keep on sinning. But what he's specifically talking about, if we had to summarize it here, is the importance of sanctification in the Christian life and the desire to pursue holiness, the desire to want to be more like Jesus. Um, when, when Christians take seriously sanctifications, sanctification, when they take seriously holiness, it opens up so many doors and opportunities in our lives, right? I mean, how many of you, when you have been taking your walk with the Lord very seriously, have noticed that there are so many opportunities in your life that you can now respond to because you're ready, right? You, you are growing, you are obeying God's commands, walking in his grace, and now all of a sudden there's opportunities for growth or there's opportunities to share the gospel, let's say. Um, and likewise, not taking it seriously is, is going to pull away from those opportunities, right? We only have so much time in our lives. But the important thing to remember here, right, bringing it back to assurance, is, God, it is, is that it is God who is working through us in all of this. It is not of our own will or ways. It's God's will um, and purpose to work through us. And that's why at the end of verse 18, he says, the evil one cannot touch us. Um, because John is driving home the point here that our eternal salvation is secure, is kept safe from the evil one because of Jesus' perfect work on your behalf despite any failures or flaws. Moving on to verses 19 and 20. It says, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We're reminded here that we are living in the world even though we're not of the world. We are reminded here that there is a devil who is making calls on this earth. But we also know from the rest of Scripture that this is God's devil, right? Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. And the idea here is that God has a tight leash on the devil, right? He still has to sovereignly allow the devil to do the things that the devil does. And so we're not to, we're not to be discouraged at the statement that the, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But we can actually be encouraged because God is for us, not against us. We are, we are of God. We are born of God. And so it's actually a privilege. We get to, we get to fight against the evil one on the victorious side. 
Um, and that's a, that's a real encouragement. Um, moving on to verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. God has chosen um, to come in flesh. God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. And this alone is is enough to rejoice for days. It is enough to carry a Christian on throughout their whole entire life. Um, but what's really incredible about it is that when Jesus defines eternal life as knowing the one true God, um, it's the idea that God has chosen to um, bring us into relationship with himself by giving us the understanding of himself. How does he do that? The incarnation. He becomes flesh. He could have he could have stayed far off. He could have just kept sending prophets to write scriptures, right? But he chose to set up a masterful plan that led up to this great Messiah who would come and suffer with us, who would come and share our pain and suffering and, and give us that peace that he knew what it was like to be tempted. And yet he never sinned. He lived a perfect life so that we could have peace. He lives now in and among us as our elder brother bringing light and love and life among his family. This is a great confidence and a great assurance that we can have closing out this letter. Now lastly, verse 21, another one of those moments where we're like, why did he write this? Why would he take this great letter and end it with, keep yourselves from idols. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, I think that in doing so, he warns us against losing the assurance he's been talking about for so long. He warns us against losing the confidence that he has labored for five chapters to describe to us. And the idea here is that God hates idolatry. He absolutely despises it. Why? Because it pulls us from communion with him. It pulls us from worshiping the one true God, right? When our hearts are pulled away from him and, and sucked in or invited to worship an idol, it ultimately leads to our, our ruin, our, the destruction of our joy, and it pulls away that confidence that we once had because we know that we're not walking the path that we should be. Now, a few common idols that we might have as college students are our academic performance, um, our phones, romantic or, or friendly relationships, where oftentimes these appear far more satisfying than the living God, but they will never fully satisfy like a living relationship with the risen Jesus does. should also, also be noted here that it's possible God is warning us against worshiping false Christs, such as um, uh, cults such as Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, where there's a different Jesus um, a Jesus that is not the Jesus of Scripture, right? This is ultimately idolatry. This is ultimately pulling us away from worshiping um, the one true Jesus. Well, this concludes our study through 1 John. Um, if you walk away from this with anything, I would hope that it would be that you know him on a deeper level, um, that you have assurance of eternal life, and especially that you know his word on a deeper level and have a, a love for his word um, now, let's bring it back uh, to finish off with the courtroom illustration one more time. We, knew, we know from last week and from our evaluation that the witnesses that came to the stand, the blood, the water, and the spirit, 
testified to Jesus, testified to the truth of Jesus, and we know that they were, tr they were true in what they said. We know that God's testimony is true, that it is a firm foundation, that it's strong and that it can't be taken down. Now, I want you to think back to where you were in the courtroom, standing before the judge, sitting before the judge. And I want you to think about how would I respond to that judge? How would I have that certainty? Well, it's because our salvation is by God's work. And so if God's testimony is true, if God's testimony passes through, then we can be sure we will pass through the judgment um, because his perfect work um, has been applied to the believers. His perfect work um, passes through the judgment, right? As I once heard a pastor say, when Christ said on the cross, it is finished, he didn't say it just because he had died. He said it to hit the gavel on eternity and seal your salvation. So the next time you ask yourself, am I truly saved? Or how can I be sure that I will pass through? Remind yourself that your eternal destiny is set in stone by your Father. And so you can live today with confidence, conviction, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much again for this time we got to spend your word. I pray that the words that were spoken will press deeply into the hearts of everyone in this room. Lord, I pray you will bring great change in the hearts of your people. I pray that you will convict, Lord. I pray that you will help people make any decisions they need to make today. I pray that you will help people um, be confident in their, in their salvation because of what you've done, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.